Thank you for listening to the Dead Sea Podcast with your host, Daishik Kim. Actually, the timing of this podcast and talking to you about Texas is good because next week I'm going to Dallas, which is your hometown. Uh, I grew up there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How long have you uh, lived there? Um, off and on, uh, probably about six years, seven years. Um, so I grew up some in East Texas, some in West Texas. Um, and let me first th- thank you for just having me on. I appreciate it. And just I really like what you're doing so far. So uh, but Texas, you got to realize it's like a small country it's massive and so mm-hmm. uh you can grow up in completely different areas in texas so grew up part of my uh part of my life in east texas part in west texas and then kind of the rest of my life in dallas fort worth area i have to ask this question okay. have you ever watched the show friday night lights i've watched a little bit yeah okay i know dylan texas is not real dylan texas is not real i know it's based after permian Okay. Yeah, Permian, which my my high school played Permian, and we beat them multiple years in a row. So you beat the coach. You beat Coach Taylor. I, I, I guess I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what years he was there, but yeah, no, they're they're a great football team. But not that I'm a huge football buff. But our our high school was also really good. We went to state multiple years in a row and stuff like that. Yeah, to this day, that's one of my favorite shows, and I still walk around saying lines from it like Texas Forever. Um, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. It is an awesome show. It's not, there's like a Christian undertone to it, sure. but there, it's just real life, you know? It makes you feel like you're in high school again. I See, I need to watch it because everyone's like, is that how Texas really is? And I've only watched bits and pieces and I'm always like, well, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, they definitely had their share of cowboy boots and okay. um, hats, cowboy hats. Yeah. Football was huge. Football is a religion in Texas. That's true. Right. Is it true like there are like 60, 70-year-olds still wearing their state rings and talking about the glory days? Yeah. So, again, Texas is so big right. that you're going to run into so many people. So, yes, you go to a small East Texas town, you better believe the guy who's pushing 70 and won state and was the hotshot quarterback. He's going to still be going to the games. He's going to be part of the booster club. I mean, he's going to be a full-fledged supporter and probably wear his letterman jacket to the games. So. So someone like me who's from Hawaii uh-huh. and has a hard time adjusting to Seattle. Yeah. You know, Seattle's supposed to be a place where almost anyone can adjust. Mm-hmm. Going to Dallas next week for a couple of days, you know, granted it's not that long, but what should I expect? Yeah, so the first thing that I would say is where Seattle is really compressed, Texas is the opposite. Everything is super spread out. Uh, we're here driving 15, 20 minutes to my friend's house seems exhausting. Growing up, driving half an hour to go to my friend's house was normal that was just part of life um we're coming from hawaii i don't even know if like 30 minutes can you even drive 30 minutes on some of the islands you know so where texas you just fly and and go everywhere so that's the first thing everything's gonna be way spread out second is that where seattle is funky and different and got culture um dallas is kind of a it's got culture to it but it's also got a much stronger feel of kind of the concrete jungle and kind of the the chain restaurants and the big hotels and, you know, kind of the big, you know, malls and things like that. It's it's all kind of a little bit more, uh, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but a, a little bit more mass produced mm-hmm. of a lot of stuff. You don't see quite as much of those kind of boutique places that Seattle's kind of known for. Christianity is a culture there. It's uh 
So, I mean, we know people that are born into a Christian family, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it takes it to a next level, right? I mean, how many, if I go down a street, yeah. how many churches am I going to see? Depends on where you're at, but I mean, there's places where you could see multiple churches on every street corner. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I mean, there's been times in my life where I've stopped at a stoplight and seen three churches on, you know, there's the four corners of the crossroad and there's three churches there. Uh, out of the four corners. So um, I think, yeah, Christianity is definitely has more of a cultural tendency um, and has that kind of that, that where that's just what we do. It's kind of the, the idea that they get. Um, Again, that's not to say that you don't have people with vibrant faith that are doing amazing things. Uh, But what that is to say is that being in the Bible belt it's very easy to skate by because you can rely on just being raised as a Christian and living kind of in a Christian culture where you don't actually have to exercise your faith in any serious way. And you don't even really have to live in a passionate way of, of discipleship for Christ as much as just kind of blend in with the crowd because everyone kind of has Christian cultural tendencies or mores that they follow so if you met a texan here in seattle is it safe to at least ask them or assume even that they're christian i would honestly i'd probably say no because a lot of the texans that i've met here came here to escape texas um came here to escape the the bible belt um so i would probably say no um that's not to say that I've run into Christians who are Texan here, but a lot, but there's also a good portion of them that, that wanted to get to a quote unquote, more accepting culture or more accepting, um, city or more, um, open-minded city. I've heard that a couple of times where I just had to get out of the South. I needed a place that was more open-minded. Um, and, and I can understand that. I, like, I, I think that there's a, a certain level of validity to that remark. Um, but that being said, they definitely, if they lived in Texas, especially if they, if they lived in the Bible Belt, just all through the South, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna definitely know the the cultural, general understanding of Christianity, just because it's just kind of part of of being in the South. Is you're gonna just pick up on those things. <laughs> so Hani memorized the Quran yeah. who we had last week right. from Egypt. Yeah. It was on the loudspeaker five times a day. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it was part of the culture. Mm-hmm. So you're saying for yourself, even though you're not a self-proclaimed Christian, um, but you're from Texas, you would assume that you would know the Christian culture pretty well because yeah. of the upbringing. Yeah, and, 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 and unfortunately, now let me be very clear that sometimes that means that they would know the Christian culture response, but not necessarily what the biblical response is. So they may know the things that people throw around as truisms, but they may not necessarily know what the scripture actually teaches. It's the similar of someone who um, watches Fox News or MSNBC or any news station and understands what the talking heads say to them, but doesn't actually do any research on their own. You're going to run into that of some Christians who, oh, I grew up in church and yeah, I, I, I know all the answers, but once you actually start engaging with them, you realize they m- know more kind of these general cultural ideas and not so much the, the details. So I would say Hanny actually is 
much more <laughs> developed than a lot as far as his understanding of Islam than uh, than a lot of the Texans uh, that don't take their faith very seriously. Okay, so yeah. first stereotype squashed. Yeah. Second one you just mentioned Fox News. Does every Texan is that their <laughs> go-to channel? Is that their source of news? Yeah. So. Let me be clear that uh, my brother just moved from Austin, and Austin, they're the blue dot. The blue dot. That's right. Mm-hmm. So Austin's uh, their their slogan is uh, "Keep Austin Weird." Mm-hmm. And uh, now I don't know if Portland stole that from them or vice versa. I think Austin may have had it first, but for all my friends who are from Portland, please don't you know, please don't kill me. Uh-huh. Um, but that being said, you're gonna have this kind of oasis of pretty vibrant uh progressivism in in austin uh but yeah i would say generally in texas you're gonna see fox news more often than not that's not that's not i mean especially once you get outside of the cities you're gonna see fox news way more right yeah i mean and we're not sitting here to bash republicans or anything or fox news for that matter um i i I grew up in a i mean some of my closest friends are developed are you know are passionate republicans and it it sounds like you're not though uh, I, I'm a libertarian, but I, I think I see pros and cons of both parties. Um, so I don't necessarily know if I lean one side or the other. I guess if I leaned, I'd probably lean a little bit more, slightly more conservative. Is it easy to generalize a libertarian as you would a Republican or a Democrat? Yeah, so I, I think you can. there are a few things that you can take to the bank. For most libertarians, but like anything, like any political party, it's not a monolith. You you meet Republicans who are, uh, you know, Tea Party hardline conservative, and then you meet ones that are what do they call them, rhinos or whatever, the Republican in name only. Uh, you know, you meet liberals who are the really hardcore progressive, and then you meet the what in the South they call them blue dog uh, Democrats, where it's it's kind of Democrats, but they have kind of a moderate leaning. And everything in between. So libertarianism is the exact same, um, that there are a few kind of core attributes that identify libertarians. But then with within that party, within that group, there's a lot of flexibility. So you find yourself as a Christian libertarian, someone who's going to seminary. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure how much you like the word Christian libertarian. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind it. But, I mean, a, a libertarian who's trying to follow the teachings of Christ. Yes. I think that's safe to say. Sure. One of the things that libertarians value is limited control from the government Mm -hmm. in regards to human rights. Mm -hmm. Specifically personal liberty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and a hot hot button issue right now is this whole gun control debate. Mm -hmm. And someone from Texas who, I mean, the stereotype's on you, Brady. Yeah, it's it's, there. (laughs) You love guns. You're from Texas. (laughs) You yeah. know, you, you love to hunt. Yeah. And again, this is these are all stereotypes sure, that sure. I'm sure has been thrown on you yeah. from the moment you got a Texas area cold, yeah. that you love hunting, you love guns, and of course you support it. Mm-hmm. But your view on gun control comes from a slightly different angle. Yeah, yeah. And so with Liberty, and let me first kind of preface all this by saying, you know, all these opinions that I have are all things that I've done some research on, on, on the side, you know, but I'm a seminarian. This is not my forte. So I'm sure I'm going to have some, uh, you know, uh, 
political majors that are gonna you know shoot you an email and be like that guy doesn't know what he's talking about so this is all my opinion my my perspective right uh but that being said yes i i think that libertarianism um the name lends itself to personal liberty and what that means is that you have uh socially you would probably consider yourself more liberal where you allow people to live their lives kind of a laissez-faire but then fiscally you're more conservative and what that means is um kind of like thomas hobbes book the you know leviathan where it's this idea that the government's getting so big that it needs to continue to take to feed itself uh libertarianism is all about kind of breaking that down and saying let's figure out what the government you know let's there's a lot that the government doesn't need to be doing and that either the private sector can be doing or nonprofits or churches or communities or individuals and families can provide and take care of for themselves. Um, so gun control, I've had that thrown at me a lot. And it it's kind of a crazy thing because I used to be a devout pacifist, like hard, hard line devout pacifist. Um, and then a couple of years ago, I had some experiences and some thoughts that really changed my perspective. At the same time, I mean, the arguments against guns mm -hmm. and owning a weapon generally centers around this topic of safety. Yeah. And I'm not sure how developed the facts are yet or where the conversation has landed. But, I mean, talking to you who, I mean, you've said already that you're not you're not going to school for political science. Right. You know, you're in seminary. But at right. the same time, as a Christian, as a seminarian, as a former hardcore pacifist, <laughs> if we can prove that banning guns will lead to safer cities and safer streets, yeah. I mean, how do you argue that as a Christian? Yeah, and that... <clears throat> I would be very interested to see that information if that ever did come about. Because, like anything, um, it's all in how you how you use statistics to, you know, to push along your own perspective. Um, there's actually a great book that I, that I read a little bit of um, called How to Lie with Statistics. And it was basically how can you take the same statistics and prove each side of the argument using the same statistics. So it's all in how you present it. Um, so that would be the first thing that I would immediately jump to. The second thing is my... My question is safety, the ultimate goal of a people. Is safety really like what we are going for as a people? Um, you know, Benjamin, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said something to the effect of, you know, the people who are willing to sacrifice safety or sacrifice their liberty for safety deserve neither and will have neither for long or something to that effect. That when we're willing to sacrifice our, our liberty for safety. And so for me, I would say, I don't necessarily know if it's the government's job to protect my wife or to protect my children. Now, I think there's a role that they can play, like labeling food is a great example where, yeah, if there's chemicals in it, I want to know, uh, you know, I want to be informed. I want the information, but it's still ultimately my responsibility to make sure that that, that I've read the information and that I make the right call for my child. And so I think with gun control, it all depends on what is your ultimate goal. If, if safety, if you want safety, the most safest place you can be is like in your own personal prison. Um, I mean, 
if you're locked up in a cage and you have food and water provided to you, that's a really safe environment. Like nothing's going to get to you there. I mean, yeah, you may get sick, but that's really about it. Uh, but that's no w- way to live. And so there always has to be a balance of the safety and liberty. And for me, I'm always going to lean a little bit more on the side of liberty because I strive and I try to not have to rely on other people uh, to protect me or to, to, you know, to keep me safe. Um, a perfect example of this specifically, I mean, if we're, if we're really going to jump into the, the gun debate is I've met pacifists who said, if someone broke into my house, then I would call the cops. And my response has always been, well, then in that situation, aren't you just passing the buck onto someone else to use, to use the threat of violence to protect you? And I always found that a very intriguing response whenever people get that because it seems like it's okay to use a police force. It's not okay if I do it myself. As long as my hands aren't bloody. Right. And, and that, always, that always bothers me. But the second thing that bothers me is, well, what about the police's response time? What if they're 20 minutes away? Then, then those questions, you know, that, sic- that cir- circumstance suddenly ramps up really, really quick. And so for me, I always say I would rather be free to act in that circumstance than have to always rely on another person to take care of me or to protect me. And so that's why I always say in liberty, you can find safety. But if you're only shooting for safety, most of the time you have to sacrifice liberty because of it. So that's my logic or my rationale. So growing up for me, um, as Christians, it was our job to make sure that the government, at least what we felt, that the government, what they were doing was for the best interests of the people. And this whole, this concept of liberty was not only a foreign concept to, I feel like, Hawaiians, but at the same time, the irony is there. Yeah. For uh, there, there are still a lot. I'm not going to get into it, but there's still a lot of Hawaiians who felt like, why are we even going to talk about liberty when that there is no such thing as liberty anymore with everything that happened and Hawaii mm-hmm. became becoming a state, etc. Yeah. Christians feeling they need to take over the government, but there's still a lot of um, Republican Christians, mm-hmm. which make up most of Hawaiian Christians, that their response to a lot of the problems they see on the streets and in the world is to make sure that the people running the government Mm. are Christian. Again, a lot of times Republicans who hopefully they're entrusting and making better decisions. Yeah. I think we're running into the same problem we ran with the police. We're passing the buck off. I don't necessarily know if we're supposed to be using the government to bring the gospel to the world. I think we're supposed to be bringing the gospel to the world. Um, I think one of the biggest one of the biggest shortcomings that we ran into as a as a country my personal belief is that whenever we stopped looking to churches to answer local and communal questions and local and communal needs and started looking to the government to answer for those and that the government replaced the church and that really bothers me because churches were the ones that were starting hospitals. Churches were the ones that were starting orphanages. Churches were the ones that were trying to help care for people. And then we s- expected a federal government that's, you know, so big and so massive that it can't tend to the, the nuances and the specific needs of a community. And we replace that. And so we almost feel like we can legislate morality. 
So you're an advocate for uh, separation of church and state. Actually, I, what do you mean by that? I mean, again, growing up in a traditional place, yeah. that was that was the heel to all of our problems, right? It was it was a thorn on our side. Separation of church and state meant we can pray in schools. Yeah. We can hold prayer meetings in public places. Yeah. But what it did as well was create a distinction between what the government was doing and what the church was doing. Yeah. So, again, I, I think being a libertarian answers those questions because I would go, you have the liberty to pray in school if you want to. You have the personal liberty to do that. You have the personal liberty that if you want to congregate together and talk about faith in a public environment, no one should be able to stop you unless that's own, that's their own private property um, or, or that they own that property in some way. Um, and so I'm, I, I think that the church, I do believe in a separation of church and state in the sense that I don't believe that I don't believe that the American government needs to, you know, try to be Christian, like as a actual government. I don't believe that you can, uh, you can legislate ethics, Christian ethics. Um, you can try, and there are certain things that you can do, but you can't change a person's lifestyle just because it's legal or illegal. We've proven time and time again that with the war on drugs, um, with issues with, uh, same-sex relationships, things like that, that you can legislate it all day long, and a lot of times all you're going to do is put people in more bondage. So so the person sitting in the Oval Office, their faith background doesn't really matter. It matters to me in the sense that it informs their perspective and informs their own personal ethics and how they view things. But um, so I would say, yes, it, it, it matters to me. But the moment that they – so it's one thing to say um, – I don't believe, you know, I personally believe that it's wrong to do X, Y, Z, but I'm willing to allow you the liberty to live a lifestyle that maybe I don't agree with. You know, Voltaire said, you know, I uh, I may not agree with you, but I'll fight to the death for your right to, to say it, you know, kind of thing. You know, I may not agree with what you say. And so, so yeah, I, I think that there's um, uh, the Oval Office, I think, I think their specific religious perspective informs their ethics um, and perf- and informs a lot of how they make decisions. But at the same time, we've seen, quote-unquote, Christian presidents who don't really behave very Christian. So I'm going to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. So at the end of the day, then, how much should the government, at least in our country, work for the oppressed and the poor? Mm. How much should they get involved? Yeah. That's a really, that's a heavy question. Um, I would say for the oppressed and for the poor, the government can help in a sense of starting conversation. The government can help in advocating and caring for people. I think there are certain laws that can definitely help. Um, you know, my my grandfather, he was a, superintendent in East Texas during desegregation of an entire district, school district. I mean, they had bomb threats. They had bricks thrown through their window. My dad has told me stories of that. Um, grew up down the street from a Klan meeting building, you know, where he saw 
KKK members walking down the street. So I can understand the federal government stepping in to stop violence and stop oppression. Um, but at the same time, it's not the government's job to answer those questions. It's the government's job to maybe offer some safeguards. But it's ultimately ours, the, the community, the people, to begin to answer those questions and begin to systematically change the, the direction of the country. Um, I don't think that a president can simply say, this is what I believe, and let that be so. I think people need buy-in, and I think we need to have the discussion too. But they're, I think they're very useful in starting the discussion. So putting on your seminary hat then. Yeah. So it, it's less on the government, it's more on the church. Yeah. And you're all for, um, even with your you know, high view on liberty, mm-hmm. it's still, would you say... It, even though it's not necessarily the government's job to do those things to help the oppressed, help the poor, you don't put those same standards on the church. No. I think the church, I think the American church, um, something that we are still answering for is the fact of how much we have passed the buck on to the federal government. And that really bothers me. And um, I think that the church, their role is to care for people is to love people, is to protect people, um, and is to empower people to live into their vision and calling uh, that they believe God's um, given them. I mean, that is the role. The role of the church is to be a servant leader and to be the, the actual embodiment of Christ's you know, community in their local you know, community and culture. And so, no, I, I, I think the federal government and the church have two very, very, very different. Uh, in fact, I would prefer for the church's role to grow a little bit and the federal government's role to shrink a little bit if I had my way. So you, I mean, I'm guessing that's one of the main reasons why you decided not to go into politics. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if I have the stomach for politics, honestly. I don't know if I could play the game. And, um, and honestly... My intrigue and my desire for politics, it all stemmed from this idea of I don't want people to tell me that I can't do something for my family. I mean, that's really where libertarianism started for me was I want to care for my wife. I want to whatever. I'm filling the blank. I want to drink raw milk. And suddenly that's illegal because the FDA said I can't drink raw milk. And I go who are you to tell me what I, you know, what I can and can't do. And, um, but ultimately I would much rather study God, study, you know, the attributes of God, study millennia. You know, our, our country has been around for such a short time and it's been a grand experiment. And I'm, I, with all of its shortcomings, I do love my country. Uh, but the church has been around for millennia. What a great history to get to study and read some of those brilliant minds and most brilliant philosophers um, that deeply impacted uh, the world. And so I think for me personally, I find the narrative of, this, of the Bible a much grander story to engage with uh, than even the narrative of our own country or of the political philosophers who impacted the Constitution or something like that. I find them both intriguing, but for me, I always gravitated towards the theological. And as a future pastor, I want to end with this question. Yeah. I get, I'm starting to formulate the uh, your views with how the government should be ran and 
the liberty that each people deserve. Mm -hmm. As a future pastor, how much is it on the pastor then with your libertarian views to, I mean, the the statement of telling your congregation how to live their life yeah. is, is a pretty, you know, has a negative stigma on it. Sure. But at the same time, we're teaching life values more, hopefully a human being's moral morality would increase, um, shape into being more Christ-like. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, um, how do you do that as a libertarian? Dude, that's a great question. I oh, that's a very thoughtful question. So as a libertarian, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, someone can live a lifestyle that I don't necessarily agree with, and that's okay. Like that, it's not my role, it's not my job to dictate how they should live their life. Now, I use dictate very specifically. That being said, as a pastor, I think it is my role to call them to a higher calling. That's not to say to, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be a Bible thumper. I'm not trying to beat people over the head and tell them you need to shape up or you're out. Um, but at the same time, there is a calling on people's lives, and there is a, a certain ethical and moral and lifestyle standard that God is calling us to that naturally flows from us when we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. And so for a pastor, what's great is that being a libertarian means no one's off limits. So if you run into uh, you know, a gay couple, and let's say you don't agree with, uh, you know, with same-sex relationships, no one's off limits as a libertarian because I can still engage with them and have close relationships with them and say, even though I may not agree or disagree with you, wherever I land on that, I can still love you and have a great relationship. But once they become a Christian, or, or once they start learning more about the scripture, saying this is what I believe the calling on our lives is, but it's still up to them and the Spirit's empowerment in their life to make that decision. I can never dictate that for them. And I think that's what's great about libertarianism, because with this binary bifurcation that we have in the political structure, most of the time there's the untouchables. So for Democrats— the hardcore conservatives, they're the ones that are, oh my gosh, they're so ignorant, they're so close-minded, ugh, I can't stand being around them. For, you know, the hardcore, you know, Tea Party conservative, it's, oh my gosh, that, you know, progressive, hippie, granola, liberal, bleeding heart, tree hugger, you know, I can't stand those people. And for libertarians, you go, okay, I, everyone is allowed to live their own life the way that they see fit. But as a Christian, I get to go, but as we grow in relationship, I want to introduce you to the way of living that Christ has called us to and see if and and then pray that the Holy Spirit engages your heart and you're able to live into the calling that God's called, you know, brought you to and introduce you to. That's the great thing about it is it really offers a lot of flexibility and freedom because no one's off limits. Is that why you never argue with anyone? <laughs> I, you know, I argue, I, you know, I, I, I think part of that is my own personality and I think part of that is... Um, I I strive to see everyone's perspective, even though some perspectives really bother me. Um, there's always a place to grow. There's always a nugget to walk away from a conversation and say, "Oh, that was I can I can now grow and I can kind of grow in my maturity or my faith or my thinking because of that small nugget." So I may disagree with ninety five percent of what you say, but if I can pick up the five percent, then that may have been a meaningful conversation that meant something and that I, uh, that I can grow from. I mean, with 
the up uprising of a lot of violence going on in the country and people desperately looking for solutions. Yeah. Um, this individual responsibility is a very interesting, intriguing topic that I want to get more into the next time that we have a conversation about yeah. this. Because, I mean, the easy answer would be changing all the laws and changing the government to make sure everybody lives with bubble wrap around them. Right. But I think we both can agree, and whatever party anyone lands on can acknowledge, it's not that simple. Well, and the beautiful thing also is that each individual who has personal liberty can create communities and care and love and protect one another. And so that's the thing about personal liberty is that it's infectious, and you can create a, a family, a network, a community, a, a town that cares and, and protects and, and loves and um, bears one another's burdens with one another um, that maybe you don't have whenever, again, you got the bubble wrap scenario that you're talking about. And I think that that may be something that we as a people and we as Christians need to discuss and w really need to start processing, uh, specifically with all the violence that's happening in the world. This is a conversation that needs to be furthered, especially with the state of everything going on. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the whole point of this show is to bring different perspectives. And I've had a pretty conservative person on. I had a pretty liberal person on, a libertarian person on. And there, like you said, we can disagree with 95% of things or 50% or 40%. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to take anything away, in my opinion, it's worth it. Yeah. And just to further our perception on a lot of things and get closer to some kind of solution with all the brokenness going on. Yeah, I think the church could learn a, a, a good lesson in saying let's look at what we have in common, let's look at the unity that we have, and let's see if we can do something positive with it, uh, then look at the distinctions. Between all right, buddy, thanks for stopping. Thank you for listening to the Dead Sea Podcast. The theme song is performed by The Bushies. Check them out on Facebook or iTunes now.